We're going to continue in our uh, series in Titus. Uh, again, if you're new here, we teach uh, verse by verse through the, the books of the Bible, and we're in Titus. Uh, our series name here is Grace and Godliness, uh, the overall theme of the book of Titus here. But this particular message this morning has a subtitle. It has a subtitle. You might even want to write it down. And the subtitle for these passages this morning is this. If the Cretan shoe fits. If the Cretan shoe fits. And I think you'll see uh, where we're going with that in a little bit here. But we're going to read in Titus 2, uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Titus 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, We're going to get through verse 10 today, and you might be going, oh, thank goodness, it's going to be short message, sorry. (laughs) These 10 verses are packed. They're packed full, and they're packed full of things that we need to hear from the Word of God. So would you pray with me one more time before we start? Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning, and I pray, God, as we have read Your Word, and now as we continue to study Your Word, God, that You, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, will lead us and guide us and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get into chapter 2 of Titus, we, we want to think back a little bit into chapter 1, how we ended off. And I, I don't know how Pastor Michael came up with such a positive message last week with the ending of that chapter. Remember, it spoke about Cretans and what they were like. They were lazy, they were liars, uh, all these terrible things. And beyond that, he spoke of these false teachers. And chapter 1 really had to do with the false teaching and the false teachers, especially those that were called the Judaizers. Those that were trying to bring people who were saved back to the law. And there were two statements made in there that I want us to remember going into chapter 2. In Titus 1, 10 and 11, uh, he said, There are many rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. That's the Judaizers. And then he says in verse 11, something really interesting we didn't get to um, get into too much, and it was this, they must be silenced because they were ruining households. Remember Pastor Michael taught us that. They must be silenced. Well, I don't know about you, but that brought a question into my mind. How are they to be silenced? I mean, really, was Paul saying what we need to do is, you know, go throw a lasso around these people Go take them in, lock them up, put muzzles on them. Uh, You know, if we tried to do that today, well, I shouldn't say that. We're supposed to have free speech today, but we don't always seem to have it today, do we? Maybe they do want to lasso us and lock us up, especially as Christians, and throw us in jail and put the muzzle on us. But that wasn't what Paul had in mind. And so we get into verse 1 of chapter 2. This is how you're going to silence those false teachers. And he says in verse 1, and by the way, I'm going to read from the neatly inspired version this morning, the NIV. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. See, Paul isn't saying you silence them by telling them they can't speak. What he's saying is, Titus, I want you to silence these people by teaching what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, as Pastor Michael has already explained to us, the word sound means healthy healthy doctrine. It's healthy because it's true and it's good. Now, when you hear the word doctrine, what do you, what do you think about first? You know, some of you may think doctrine, okay, you know, the great doctrines of theology such as the triune nature of 
of God. That's one of the great doctrines of Christianity. Or maybe the great doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. And the teaching that goes with that. Or some of you may be thinking of, wow, that doctrine of justification by the atoning work done on the cross for us. Or maybe your mind, and especially if you were here with us Tuesday night at Truth Academy, your mind goes to the doctrines of eschatology and all of those great things that we learned there. But Paul is going to teach us something here that's very important. And he's going to teach us that teaching healthy doctrine is more than just an academic endeavor. He says, teach that which is in accord with sound doctrine. And what he's going to do here is he's going to connect the fact that that sound doctrine is not just an academic exercise, but that sound doctrine is going to teach us and lead us into godly behavior. I shared that with the uh, Truth Academy class on Tuesday night. You know, doctrine is not just there for doctrine's sake, even when we're studying the end times. It's there to lead us into godly behavior. Remember last week that Pastor Michael taught us a very important truth. He said, you know, in God's eyes, we cannot become more righteous than we are. Right? And we can't. We will never be more righteous in God's eyes in terms of our salvation than we are today. Or that when we were the very first day we came to the Lord. But, Paul is teaching us here that we can add godliness or holiness so to speak. In 2 Peter 1.5, and you don't have to turn there, you can take a look at it later, or we should have it on the screen here for you. Is it up there? Hopefully we'll get there in a second. 2 Peter 1.5-7, he says this, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So this is what Peter wrote about adding to our faith. And it's going to be interesting as we go through here in Titus. And we're going to see so many similar terms. So let's remember before we get into this, let's remember first what the people of Crete were like. We, we read that in first, uh, the first chapter of Titus. But I want you to, to get a little more background here. You know, Crete was a pretty large island, um, and at one time it boasted of a hundred cities. That was, that was big in that day. And remember, in that time and culture, it was all about the city. Remember, Rome dominated the world. It wasn't Italy that dominated the world. It was the city of Rome. And Crete was captured by Rome somewhere uh, in 68 to 66 B.C. And so it was made a Roman province. And so the culture in that city, in the, in, in the, on that island, in all the cities of that island, the culture was Roman. It was very Roman. Their practices were Roman, and their gods were Roman. And Paul knew this well because he had visited Crete between his first and his second imprisonment in Rome. So he's very familiar with Cretan culture. And remember, there was an instruction that Paul had given to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5. He said, Titus, I want you to set things in order. I want you to set things in order. In other words, there's a lot of things going on in this culture, but we've got to set some things in, in order. So we know that, 
these particular instructions were very tailor-made for the churches on Crete. However, whenever the Bible is teaching a specific group, it always has implications for us. Those, those passages are not there just to instruct where the group of people where the letter went, so to speak. So, this morning, if the Cretan shoe fits, if the Cretan shoe fits, let's wear it. Let's look at these specific instructions this morning that were given to these specific groups. And it's not only a specific group on Crete, but very specific groups within the church at Crete. So let's look at those and let's see what applies to us personally. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's apply those things to our lives that we see this morning. So, moving on to verse 2. He says this, Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Okay, the older men. Hmm. If the Cretan shoe fits, what can I say? I'm glad I don't have to uh, listen to this one, but, but some of you out there do. Uh, actually, uh, actually uh, a lot of the scholars and commentators that I read feel very strongly that this was about 60 years and older uh, in this cultural sense here uh, when they talked about older men. Um, but it's not, we're not told specifically, so again, if the shoe fits... Now, there's three things here at the very beginning that he brings up. Temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. These really are things that should accompany all men as they grow older. It, it just fits for an older person, an older man in particular. But it seems that possibly this wasn't happening there in Crete, and that's why these specific instructions were there. So let's take a look at them. Temperate, the word temperate there, in the ESB it's translated sober-minded, and that's probably the best translation of this word, especially in this context. It actually means the opposite of intoxicated. It's a negative word. The word is actually literally the opposite of being intoxicated, literally by wine, but of course figuratively, we know that we can be intoxicated by many different things. And so it's the opposite of that. It's being sober-minded, not just being sober physically, but sober-minded. And it's possible that the older men in Crete, and as we will see in a little bit, the older women of Crete had real issues with addiction to wine in particular. And you know, this makes sense given the culture that they grew up in. Remember, it was a Roman culture. And especially before they came to know the Lord. You see, in that culture, partying and drunkenness that went along with uh, the partying was very rampant. And I would say to us, if the Cretan shoe fits in America today, let's wear it. And the truth of the matter is, I know that that's true. We have a problem here in America today. I taught health for 37 years in high school. I know this to be a fact, but I'm going to just share with you, and again, we're not going to make this whole message in one particular area because there's a lot of areas we're going to cover, but I think some things that might open our eyes a little bit. Here in a 2015 survey on drug use and health, uh, we're told that 86.4% of people 18 or older reported that they drank alcohol at some point in their lifetime. 70.1% reported they drank in the past year and 56% reported they drank in the past month. Therefore, 
the, the use is, is there. Now let's go a little further. 26.9% of the people, 18 or older, reported that they had engaged in binge drinking in the past month. 26.9%. That's over one-fourth of the people in America. 7% reported that they engaged in heavy alcohol use in the past month. In adults, 15.1 million adults ages 18 and older, that's 6.2% of that group, had what's called AUD. AUD is the new term. Uh, alcohol use disorder. In other words, they're alcoholics. This includes 9.8 million men. Boy, did Creed have a problem or does America have a problem? About 1.3 million adults received treatment for AUD at a, at a specialized facility, and that's only people that came in. Um, I, I could go on and on, just one more quick one here. An estimated 88,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually, making alcohol the fourth leading preventable cause of death in the United States. And of course, we know, uh, and I also taught driver ed, uh, the amount of uh, alcohol-related fatalities. Uh, in 2014, almost 10,000 deaths in America occurred from that. So if the Cretan shoe fits, and I'm not saying here in this room, but what I'm saying is it's an overall problem here in America, and we would do well to recognize that. Now, of course, we know what the Bible says, and Pastor Michael taught about it. We know that the Bible says that you're not to be addicted to wine. It does not say that you cannot have a drink as a Christian. I don't even want to go there. I'm so tired of these silly arguments we have. But we have to recognize that it was an issue here in Crete. It's an issue here in America. And we need to look at it realistically and say, is it an issue for me here as an older man in particular who Paul is speaking to. But as I said, the real meaning of this word goes even deeper than that. It's not just be, uh, about being controlled by a chemical substance. We can be controlled in our mind by many, many things, can we not? How many of us are so obsessed with sports that we decide, oh, uh, on Sunday i, I got to see the game. I don't really need to go to church today. Um, I have to say personally how easy it is for me. I know when I was younger, I have to say we've had this discussion with, uh, with Joe Kelly a lot here. I was obsessed with, with lifting weights at a period in my life. I know you can't tell anymore, but, but there was a time, and, and it didn't matter where I was. I had to go find a place to lift. I had some goals in mind, but I got obsessed with it. There are people today that are obsessed with fitness, right? Um, those things can control our mind. Okay, ladies, let's throw shopping out there. Some of you are obsessed with shopping. And I know some of you men are too. Okay? We can get, and our mind always goes back to those things. And they begin to control our mind. And this is what Paul is speaking about here. We're to be sober minded to not have other things controlling our mind. And, you know, Paul's very consistent in drawing comparisons. And so, you know, back in when he said, don't. Be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but instead be filled with what? The Holy Spirit. He always makes comparisons to let us know what it is He's really trying to teach us. He makes comparisons. So He does that here. And when a man is sober-minded, we see these other traits that we spoke about. Worthy of respect. It's an interesting uh, word. It's semnos in the Greek. Uh, it can mean venerable. It can mean honorable. 
Uh, Kittle, who is a great Greek scholar, says it means serious and worthy of respect. And then the next one we see there is self-controlled. And interesting, it's not the same word used in Galatians uh, for um, self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's a different word used here. It's used in 1 Timothy 3.2. It means prudent, sensible, not given to frivolity. And we'll see that used a couple more times here in Titus as well. Not given to frivolity. I think that's a good word. So again, these are things really that any older man, we should see that happening in your life as you get a little more mature. But apparently it wasn't happening on Crete the way it should be. And so you begin to see a picture here uh, forming of what an older man's life should look like. And especially we're talking here an older man who is a believer in Jesus Christ. But then Paul gives three more godly traits or virtues here that Titus should be teaching the older men about. I'm going to give you the Greek words. He says you should be sound or healthy in pistei, which is faith. And faith, of course, we know is interchangeable with the word trust. So he's saying an older man should be sound in his faith in God and in his trust in God. And of course... You should, if you're growing in the Lord and you've had a longer period of time to walk with Him. The next one is agape. Uh, the word that we find in 1 Corinthians 13 and all throughout the New Testament, but the picture of agape is love, and love is described in that chapter. I always encourage people, read it, read it, read it, read it. Know what love is, what true love is, not the love we see uh, spoken about in the pictures that we see today, the movies and the songs we hear, true agape love described in 1 Corinthians 13, an older man that should be part of the character he's developing. True, selfless, agape love. And then the third one is hupamone. Hupamone. It means perseverance, steadfastness, or I like this last one, patient endurance. There's a difference between endurance and patient endurance, isn't there? We can endure a lot of things. We can make it through. But that doesn't mean we're being patient with it. And in an older person, you know, I have found this to be true. Uh, I find that older men tend to go one way or the other when they, as they get older. They tend to either get more impatient, and you know what I'm talking about. It's that person you might call, what a cranky old man. You know, and especially when they're around younger people, they can't handle it. And they're very impatient. But I've seen the other side too. And that is an older man who gets infinitely more patient. And I think he does that because he realizes what a waste of time to be like that. And you know, when you get to be... My wife's going to hate it because I always say this. But when you get to be my age, the truth is you know you really, unless God provides some kind of miracle you have less years ahead of you on this earth than you have behind you. And you start to think about that and you go, why am I going to waste my time getting all uptight and all upset about these things? It's not worth it. Um, but I want you to understand that really and truly, these last three we spoke about are characteristics that you're going to gain only by one thing. And that is to have a close relationship with Jesus. And relying upon the Holy Spirit. Because I don't care how mature we think we get, there's going to be times when we're going to lose that patience. 
when we're not going to have that selfless love unless we're being led and guided by the Holy Spirit because of our relationship with Jesus. I would say that these three things are much more caught than they are taught. Amen? I could stand up here and tell you for days on end about what you should do, but without that relationship with Jesus, they won't happen. And I do believe that if a man is a a believer in Christ, if he's dedicated to his walk with Christ, he spends time with Christ, he's certainly going to grow in his faith and his trust in God, and he's certainly going to grow in his love, and he's certainly going to grow in his patience. Well, verse 3, he says, Likewise, in the same way as you would share with older men, that's what he means, likewise, Titus, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Okay, older women, there is no way I'm going there. No. (laughs) Not happening. (laughs) Again, the scholars would say they believe that this refers to women who are are done really raising their children. Um, Again, we don't know that. And it's not there specific, and I think it's good that it's not, because... We need to look at ourselves and say if the Cretan shoe fits. That's up to you. So the first quality that we see here, this is interesting. The first word that's used here is reverent. Reverent. Now when we think of reverence, I think sometimes we have a mistaken idea of reverence. It seems to be that we think reverence is all about being very stoic, very quiet, and even sometimes ritualistic in our, in our worship that that's real reverence toward the Lord. Well, I, I certainly believe that there is a time and place for very quiet worship, for, for a little bit being stoic and reflective, but that's really not what this word means. It's interesting, the word here is hieroprepeus in Greek, and it's only used this very time in the New Testament. It's a combination of words, hieros, which means sacred, and we know sacred means set apart to God. So, hieros, set apart to God, and prepo is the other um, half of the word, and it means be conspicuous. So, let's put that together. Now, sometimes you put two Greek words together and it doesn't work right. But in this particular case, it works absolutely perfectly to describe the meaning. Sacred, set apart, and be conspicuous about it. That's what it means to have reverence. In other words, you want to live in a way that's set apart to God, and it should be in a way that other people can actually see it. It's not to be hidden away. It's a life of being set apart to God that when you walk around, people will look at you and go, this is a person who who lives their life for God. That's what this reverence means here. 1 Timothy 2.9 2.9 says this, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls. And by the way, this doesn't mean you can't wear jewelry or makeup or any of this other stuff. It's a comparison. Verse 10, but instead of that being your mindset, your mindset should be verse 10, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. It's a comparison. It's not that you can't dress up. It's not. I hope you do, and I hope you look nice. But I hope even more that your reverence is shown in your good deeds appropriate for one who professes to worship God. 
Well, next he says to these older women, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teach what is good. Wow. We see some pretty, pretty harsh stuff here. The word here for slanderers is diabolos. Diabolos. We get the word diablo. What does it stand for? The devil. This word for slanderers is the very word used to describe who Satan actually is. It means false accusers. Now, I really want you, and and women, but I want everyone in here to take this seriously. Don't take this lightly. It's a sin that we don't like to acknowledge when we talk about sins. We usually talk about these things that we can see very easily and quickly, right? Oh, you do this, you do that. But slander is one where you may not be very visible with it. It may be just in your own mind or in your own family or with a close friend that you are falsely accusing someone, that you are slandering their name. And we tend to not think much about that particular sin, but it's the same word used for the devil. I think we need to think about it. So do not be slanderers, he says to the older women, and that's what Titus is to teach. Now, the next part of that, he says, don't be addicted to much wine. So we see that this was a problem not just for the men, but for the women as well. Now, the scholars uh, point out that in this particular society, in Roman society, and it may have been worse on Crete, but in Roman society, women were treated really poorly. And they were neglected. The the husband of of a wife in Roman society may spend most of their time away from the home, oftentimes visiting the temple prostitutes and doing their religious ceremony. There, now put yourself in in that woman's place, you can see it might be hard uh, to live under that situation. And so it seems like what happened is that many of them took to drinking excessively to deal with what they were going through. Now remember that the habits that these people had on Crete, you know, for most of them it was carryover from their quote-unquote BC days. We like to use that term a lot, right? We say that, yeah, I used to do that, but that was in my BC before Christ Days And hopefully it isn't after, but many of us struggle with a lot of this after as well, if we're honest. So these were habits that carried over even after they uh, became Christians in this society, in this culture. And that's why they needed to be addressed. But I want you to look at the positive part of this. Look what the verse says happens when a woman chooses to live the reverent way rather than the other way. It says that she can teach what is good. She can teach what is good. Why why does he say that? Well, think about it. A woman who lives in a reverent way is going to have credibility as she teaches that which is good, right? People are going to listen if she's set apart to God and people can see it. (coughs) Excuse me. I mean, let's face it. Do any of us really want to listen to someone who's preaching to us and preaching to us and preaching to us, and we see their lives and their lives demonstrates exactly the opposite of what it is they're preaching to us. Right? And that starts when we're kids. You know, when we're young and we see our parents and they say, now, I don't want you to do this. And you go, well, you do it. (laughs) Yes, but I'm an adult. Yeah, but you do it. We don't want to listen to someone who doesn't set the example for us. 
And Paul is telling Titus, you must teach women to be this example so there's a purpose for it, so they can teach what is good and have credibility. And it's really important. It says to teach what is good. So ladies, I want you to pay close attention here and I don't want you to miss what Paul is telling Titus to teach here. There's some very specific things that he lists here. And I would say that there are things that are much, much, much needed in our culture today and instead are much neglected in our culture today. Let's look at verse 4. It says, Then they can train, and this is the word sophronizo, again it means sound mind, so in other words, bring to sound mind the younger women to do two things, it says right here, to love their husbands and children. Now, this may seem weird because you go, well, of course. I mean, that's natural. I'm going to love my husband and my, and my children. But that may not have been so true on Crete at the time. And it's not always true here in America today either. If you read the news, you know that that's true. What's interesting here is, as, as Paul is beginning to share, look, ladies, if you're married, this is your first calling. It's to love your husband and your children. The word love here is not the one we normally think of. It's not the agape love. It's not that selfless um, love that's spoken about in 1 Corinthians 13. It's actually philandros, which comes from phileo, which is really the brotherly love or just affectionate love in Greek. So what he's really saying here, teach a younger woman to be affectionate to their husband's and their children. That may not come as naturally for some as, as others. But notice here, this is important, notice that he says to train them in that, that means it's a learned behavior. It can be learned. It may come naturally, but if it doesn't come naturally, ladies, Paul tells Timothy right here to teach them to train in that. That means it can be learned. And you know, this was really important, especially in, in that particular day and age because a lot of marriages were still being arranged. They were being arranged by the families, uh, especially in Jewish culture. So think about that. You married someone you didn't love. You certainly would have to learn how in order for that marriage to survive. So what else does he say to the, to the older women here, to teach the older women? Verse 5 says again to be self-controlled. That same word showing up again. Boy, I think if you haven't written that down yet, you need to write that down. It means to be, again, of sound mind. Teach them to be of sound mind, self-controlled, and pure. And that word pure in the Greek, if you translate it literally, might mean innocent or modest. That might be another way that you would do it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the last one here. And it says to be busy at home. Uh Uh-oh. Touchy subject here. So... I'm 99% sure that I will offend someone here today. Because the question that always comes up, does this mean that I as a wife and mom must stay home with my husband and my kids and not work? And that is a touchy subject today because culturally what's being taught to women today and also just sometimes economically And so in the church, it can be a touchy subject. It really shouldn't be. So let me ask you, does that verse say that the wife must stay at home 
24-7 and, and not work? It doesn't say that, does it? What it does say is that you need to be busy at home. And that tells us something, ladies, that's really, really important. And that is this, what you do at home is so important. Now, some would look at this and say, no, 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 this is just a cultural situation here. You know, in Crete and in the Roman culture, you know, women just didn't have any opportunity outside the home. And so this was just speaking culturally, and we can kind of check this one off the list. Well, I'm telling you, if you check this one off the list, you might as well check the rest of them off the list too. Okay? Because there's no indication here that Paul is speaking any differently to this group as any other group there. And these letters applied not just to those particular individuals, but to all in the church. So let's not look at it that way. Let's look and find out what it really wants to teach us. Um, There's a bigger principle that we need to learn here. And it doesn't say that you can't work outside the home. And biblically, there is not a mandate to not work outside the home. There's not a mandate. There may be some principles that we need to look at when we make those decisions. And we're not here to put legalistic burdens on families here. I want you to be clear with that. But even secular psychological research would tell you that raising children who are healthy and well-adjusted, and, and it, you know, America today, they hate the fact that even secular psychologists agree with this, involves having a father and mother, and that having uh, nurturing from mother at home is huge in well-adjusted children. That's just the truth. Again, not trying to put any guilt trips on anyone here. You see, I want you to know, ladies, and I want you to know this from the bottom of my heart, there's an element that you bring to the home that a father, husband cannot bring to the home. God has made you in a unique way just as He has made the man in a unique way. And there's things that each one brings to the home that no one else can do. And I believe that the the real implication of this word being busy or working at home is this. It's for you as, as wife and mom to keep a good and nurturing environment in the home. An environment to where your family will flourish. And can I say that and say that this is biblical? I think if you looked at Proverbs 31, and I'm not going to have you turn there because it's very long, but I would encourage everyone, every wife, every mom, every woman to read this and then don't guilt yourself over the fact that you're not this person because I don't know any women that are. Okay? This is an amazing proverb here. But I'm just going to share a few things from here. Verse 17 of Proverbs 31 says about and this is called the wife of noble character, it says she sets about her work vigorously. And it says in 18, her lamp does not go out at night. And I know some of you moms are going, yeah, I know that one. Everybody else is asleep, I'm still up doing stuff. And, and that's often true. Verse 25 says she's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. I think that's because she's like, okay, when those kids are out of here... <laughs> Verse 26, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. You see, it's not all just about I am the slave of the home. It doesn't really mean that at all. I would hope that you ladies are good delegators. 
because that's going to help your home to flourish. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She works at home. Her children arise and call her blessed, not always when they're little. Hopefully it's going to happen later. And her husband also, and he praises her. And you husbands, when you have a wife like that, you better be praising her. You could go on and on here again. I suggest that you take some time to read that. But that's the evidence that there is a biblical model, there is a biblical principle for wives and moms at home. It's such an important task. Again, we're not saying you can't work outside. In fact, if you read that proverb, you'll see that this, this woman did all kinds of work outside the home. All kinds of work. I don't know how she did it. We would call her super mom today. But the principle here in this particular chapter is to be busy at home. And I believe being busy, helping that home to flourish. And that's going to look different in every household. No two households are going to look exactly alike. Don't compare yourself to anyone. Just look at what the Bible says. And if the Cretan shoe fits, let's, let's wear it. Now, part of the way that this is going to happen is in the next two instructions. So two things that you would do to help this happen in the home is this. It says to be kind and to be subject to their husbands. In other words, part of the way your home's going to flourish is that you're to be kind and to be subject to your husbands. The word kindness is an active word. Kindness, especially when you look at it in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's a word of action. It's not just, you know, I'm nice, that's part of it, but I actually do things that show how nice I really am. It's, a, it's an active word. Kindness is active. And then the last one, of course, is being subject to husbands. And I'm not going to go through a great extensive uh, period of time on that. But um, being subject to our husbands, Ephesians 5, that's what we're taught. That is the order of things in the home. It means allow your husband to be the spiritual leader in the home. That's what it really means. Allow your husband to be the spiritual leader. And I know some of you are going, but he won't do it. And I know that's true. And some of you men need to step it up. And then the men come back and go, she won't let me do it. <laughs> Ladies, you need to listen to that. He doesn't do it the way I would. That's right. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and praise the Lord that you don't always do it the way He does. That's why God puts us together. What does the Bible say in Genesis, ladies, that your role is to be? I know you all know this. It's to be a helpmate. It says that your husband, who was given the task in the garden, is the task-oriented person, and you're to be the helpmate in that family. It has nothing to do with equality. It has to do with the role that's played. And it's an important role. Both roles are equally important. And ladies, I'm sorry, but if you don't like that, you're going to have to take it up with God, not me. I didn't invent it. He did. Now look, as practical as Paul is, and I love this. He doesn't just give you all these instructions and leave you there. He gives you the motivation, the purpose of why you should do this. The biblical reason. Why do I have to be this way? I don't want to be this way. Why do I have to? Well, He gives you the reason. And it's not because it's a popular thing to do, because in today's society, these things aren't popular. And it's not even for your own self-satisfaction to go, well, I, yeah, I do that. You know, pretty good. No. And it's not so you can go around looking spiritual to everyone else. 
No, he says very specifically, if you look here at the end of the verse, he says it's so that no one will malign the Word of God. That's a purpose and motivation. It's so that no one will look at the Word of God and then look at you as a Christian and say, I don't want anything to do with that. Why would I want to do that? What hypocrisy we see there. It's so that no one can malign the Word of God, but instead the Word of God will be proven to other people as worthy and, and valuable and true because it affects your life and the way you live. Okay, next group coming up here. Young men. Who are the young men? The scholars that I have studied here, uh, there's quite a bit of an agreement on this. A young man, they don't say when it switches to be for sure the older man, but a young man starts one day after 13 years old in that culture in that this was written in. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't know if that would have been true in Roman culture so much, but certainly in Jewish culture because they have a ceremony to designate that. What's that called? Bar mitzvah. That's right. You're recognized. You're old enough at 13 years and one day to comment on the Scriptures. How interesting is that? Some of you guys in your family devotions having your 13-year-old commenting on the Scriptures to you. But that's what it was. And so they say that began there. And so verse 6 of our text says this, Similarly, encourage the young men, the young men now, to be self-controlled. Well, now he's used that word again, and I think we all know that if you're 13 years old in one day, this is going to be pretty important, isn't it? Not too many 13-year-olds are all that self-controlled. They may have been more in that culture. But again, being of sound mind is what he's really talking about here. Thinking clearly. Encourage the young men, Titus. To do this. Then verse 7, this is important. He says, In everything, you, Titus, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. Now, in a certain way, Titus couldn't really set the example for the older men because he was so much younger than most of them. Yeah, I mean, you still can, but, but not in the same way that Titus could to the younger men because he was closer to their age. And I want you to think about this. You know, It's one thing for your young people, and if there's young people in here, I hope you're listening to this as well. It's one thing to be instructed by an older person. And how many of you are instructing your youngsters, and what you're getting is this? Right? If not physically, at least in their mind, you see that going, right? Why? Well, because we're all that way. It's like you don't understand anymore. You're too old to get it. You know, in my day, it was you're over 30. You're over the hill. Oh, my gosh. Imagine that. But a younger person, a younger person, especially for a young man, to have an example of a peer doing the things that are spoken about in the Bible has tremendous, tremendous impact on a young person. You know, they act like their parents are supposed to do this, but man, this guy, he, why isn't he wild and crazy like me? You see, it has a tremendous impact, and I would say especially on a young man. I think you can see, you know, I just throw, throw out an example, a young man like Tim Tebow. The impact he is having on young men, he's having an impact on everybody, but especially on young men who look at this guy and go, what a tremendous person this is and and he's having a great impact for the gospel with other young men 
And he says this now to Titus next. He says, in your teaching, so be an example, but in your teaching now, show integrity. Uh, the New American Standard says purity in doctrine. I like that. Show integrity in what it is that you're teaching. The Greek word means not corrupt. So what he's saying is, Titus, don't corrupt the Word of God. Teach it the way it's meant to be taught. Teach what it says, not what you want to give an opinion on. Not in a self-serving way to, to gain popularity or have people all you know, think you're the greatest speaker in the world or to gain wealth or power as we see oftentimes the Word of God being used for today. Amen? No, he says, don't corrupt the Word of God. Teach it with integrity and purity in doctrine. And he says, with seriousness, gravity, that's seriousness. It's the same word being as worthy of respect. And then he says in verse 8, and soundness of speech. Literally, again, being a healthy word, a healthy word. And now listen to this last part here in verse 8. He says, that cannot be condemned. So he's saying that, that, Titus, you need to present the word when you're teaching with integrity, with purity of doctrine. He says, and you need to present it. Not just the content of what you're saying, but the way you're saying it has to be with soundness of speech, healthy word that cannot be condemned. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about how Pastor Michael had shared a little while ago, and I know this is true because I've heard these messages. Pastor Michael had shared with us that, that today there's, there's pastors in pulpits that feel like, you know, when you're getting up there, you've got to be real up there. So they're being encouraged to even cuss in church. Use these words. Be real up here because people need to know you're real. Really? I would say that the instructions here for Titus would tell you no. But it's not just in Titus. Ephesians 5.4 says this, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, this was written to all of us as Christians. How much more a pastor standing in a pulpit teaching the Word of God. Now, Paul, as usual, doesn't just leave Titus right there. His head might be spinning, but he says, look, there's some motivation for this. Here's why you need to do this. He says, so that, looking again at the end of verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing to say bad about us, meaning all of us as Christians. So those that were opposing Titus, and again, it was probably those Judaizers we're talking about, but others as well, and we have those people today who oppose what we're teaching. But he's saying if we do it this way, those people can't oppose us, and they'd be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us that can stick. All right, last, last group here. And this one is, is a difficult one in a way here. Let's read it, verse 9. He says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Now, I'll just tell you, a lot of people have a hard time with the fact that why does Paul teach slaves to be obedient here? Isn't he condoning slavery then? Isn't he, shouldn't he be teaching you know, slaves who want their freedom and revolt from their masters? And I want to make it very clear here. There's nowhere in Scripture that condones slavery. It doesn't do that. 
Okay? It doesn't speak on it in this cultural sense, and here's why. Right here, Paul is making it clear. He is speaking to those who are Christians that are slaves. Now, these slaves, the word doulos, in Greek, of course, can mean slave and it can mean bond slave. It's used interchangeably with both. There's some who would say it always just means slave. But we know that in this culture, by the way, maybe you didn't know this, it, it is said that half of Roman society were doulases. Either voluntary slaves or involuntary slaves. Half of the society was. And remember that a lot of these people were bond slaves. They had maybe been involuntary, but at a point in time where they gained their freedom, chose to stay. Or they may have been paying a debt off, and the debt got paid, and they chose to stay. That's what the bond servant is. That's what we are in Jesus Christ. We are bond slaves. We have chosen to attach ourselves to the household of God. And that's what a lot of these people... Well, why did Paul even speak about this then? Why would he have to, to go into this? Well, think about that. If half of the Roman society was slaves, and in Crete and every other Roman province, people were coming to Christ in big numbers, then you had these people who were masters, and they were slaves. And you remember back to our scripture reading that Jim so eloquently read for us? The scripture reading said there is no difference between slaves and masters in Christ. We are all one in Christ. And so what Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to teach that these slaves don't take advantage of your masters just because they're a brother in Christ. Don't be lazier because, well, after all, my brother, he'll understand. We're brothers. Come on, bro. You know, don't, you know, don't be so harsh on me, bro. We can tend to do that, can't we? Well, if the Cretan shoe fits, how does that work for us? Well, I think we need to understand that this is an employer-employee relationship that we have. We've chosen to work for someone. And remember again here that Paul didn't just leave us with this. He said there's a reason for it. You can look in verse 10 there. He says, so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. He's not telling a slave even not to desire their freedom. He's saying, behave this way because it makes the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. So what is he saying first? Your first priority is not your physical freedom. Your first priority is the freedom you've already been given in Christ. And you want to make that attractive to other people and you have an opportunity to do that. So he gives us that motivation um, and again, we want to put, put the shoe on here. We want to look at this in terms of our employee-employee relationship. If you have a Christian employer, don't take advantage of that employer. And in fact, we're to do just the opposite. We, we should be the best employee of every company that we may work for, whether it's an education, whether it's a company that you work for, wherever it is. We should be the best example of a worker that you can have. And I would have to say, in my experience, it's not always been that way. I've had guys, you know, come and do work at my house. I hired them because they were Christians and I would never hire them again. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that a terrible thing to, to, to say about a, a believer? The witness that you're leaving there. So Paul is making it very clear here. This is all about your relationship with Christ first and being an example 
Uh, now, why did he put in there in particular not to steal from the master? Well, remember, a lot of these bond slaves had control over the whole household and all of the finances. The husband would you know, just be off doing his thing and put a steward in charge. That was his job. So it would have been easy for him to do it. Paul's saying, no, don't do that. Ephesians uh, 6, 7, and 8 says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And I, there's other verses that you could look at that all teach the same thing. So just uh, in conclusion, from all of these different areas and different groups that are spoken to, you know what, what really do we want to take away from this teaching that Paul was giving to Titus to teach the members of his congregation. And I think that probably each one of us as we've gone through has had at least one, one shoe to put on, right? We've had one. Maybe more. And the, the key is, are we going to own up to it? Or are we just going to continue to excuse ourselves in that area where we had to put that shoe on? And say, yeah, Whatever. I think we want to own up to it. You know, I, I, I kind of take this the same way as if Paul was writing to us pastors here at Living Truth. You know, we have the same obligation that Titus had to his congregation to teach the Word in purity and integrity so that you might find that shoe you need to put on and by the power of the Holy Spirit put it on. And it's not really an obligation. It's a privilege to be able to do that. Because we're pointing out areas in growth that we all need. And let's remember, what were the three goals or motivations for all of these? So that no one will malign the Word of God. So that those who oppose us will be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say. Because our example lives up to what we say. And thirdly, so that in every way that we'll make the teaching about God attractive. That's our goals. It's all about being a good representative of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it gives us the ability to share with credibility with people. I just want to close with this. In the movie Woodlawn, I hope you've seen that, but if you haven't, there's a great depiction in this movie about the great movement of God there was in the 1970s, the Jesus movement it was called. And at one high school in racially torn Birmingham, Alabama, it was nicknamed Bombingham. It was so bad. Almost every member of a high school football team, after hearing the gospel, responded to the invitation to receive Christ. And their lives changed so radically, a life divided by racial hatred to love for one another. It spilled over into the entire school, and then it, it even went out to their rival school, where they did the, had the same experience there, the whole football team coming to Christ. And eventually it permeated the whole city of Birmingham the love that these young men had and the demonstration and example they were of Jesus Christ. And one of the great scenes in the movie, one of the great scenes and lines of any movie, and it's a true story, it is about their coach. He was a non-believer. And he just was marveling at what was happening to his team. He tried to prevent the, the evangelist from even sharing with his guys at first. And then he watched all this happen during the season with his team. And it... At a certain point in time, he finally, finally sees the light. And according to the movie, and I don't know if it happened exactly that way, but he walked into a church where many of his uh, African-American players went to church. And he spoke in church 
And he gave a little speech, but the line that he said that was so critical was, I want what my players have. And he gave his life to Christ and he was baptized. You see, when we are living our lives in the way that Titus was to teach his congregation, and as we walk out in our world, what we want to have is we want people to look at our life and we want them to say, I want what they have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for your word. And um, sometimes it's tough to hear some of these things, Lord, because we know we haven't been living up to, to what we've seen here. But Lord, just help us to know that it's not in our own power, our own might, and our own strength that we do this. That anything that you have called us to do, that you will give us the power by the Holy Spirit to do. And so I pray for each one this morning here, Lord, help each one to put that shoe on, that Cretan shoe if it fits them, Lord, and to take ownership and say, today, this very day, Lord, I'm going to give this over to you. And God, I'm going to ask that you'll do a great and mighty work in my life so that people will look at my life and say, I want what that person has. And we'll have credibility to share the gospel with each one. And so if that's you this morning, I pray as we're just getting prepared here to take communion, that you will make that your prayer. And as, as you uh, receive the cup and the bread this morning, that you'll reflect upon that and just really spend that time with the Lord. And if there's anyone here this morning, God, that hasn't received you yet, I pray that you'll be speaking in their heart right now. And if that's you, you can make a commitment to Jesus Christ right now. You can be like that coach and say, I want what these people in here have. Come to the Lord. Ask Him to, to forgive you of your sin. Ask Him to come into your life. Ask Him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And in so doing, you'll be able to take communion this morning and to share in, in this beautiful experience with the body of Christ. So God, I pray for that one that may be here that they would do that this morning. And, and Lord, as we uh, take this time of communion, Lord, would you speak to all of our hearts in the way that you would have each one of us hear you. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name.